Hello, my name is Andrew Pollard. Welcome to our podcast series, The Oxford Colloquy, bringing the facts, stories and people behind the science. On this podcast, I'll be talking with Professor Maheshi Ramasamy, a consultant physician at the John Radcliffe Hospital here in Oxford and a vaccine researcher. She was in the front line looking after patients during the pandemic. In this podcast, she gives a moving account of her experiences with those patients, which some may find distressing. On today's podcast, I'm going to be talking to Professor Maheshi Ramasamy, consultant physician um, at the John Radcliffe Hospital um, in Oxford and also a clinician scientist at the Oxford Vaccine Group. Maheshi is a fellow at Magdalen College, Oxford and Deputy Director of Graduate Medicine at Oxford University. Maheshi, you were um, a, uh, or are a consultant physician and, and were in that role um, during the pandemic um, that started in 2020. Um, how did you um, end up um, in medicine in the first place, and I, I, I read that you were both at Cambridge and at Oxford. That's right. So I, I guess I always um, wanted to do medicine, and I grew up in Sri Lanka. And when I was, um, you know, following around people doing work experience as a teenager, um, the things I saw on the wards in Sri Lanka were things like malaria or Japanese encephalitis, dengue, and so I thought that's what medicine was. I thought infections were what you did as a doctor you treated infections and so that's how I ended up um, at university at Cambridge doing doing medicine um, and then in my third year I worked with um, uh, Professor Margaret Stanley who was one of the pioneers of the HPV vaccine and she was an extraordinary um, uh, scientist and doctor who really inspired me to work on immunology and vaccines um, and then I finished my junior doctor training, specialised in, in infectious diseases, and then decided to go back to the lab and came to work for you, Andy, as a PhD student in Oxford, uh, working on meningitis vaccines. And that's sort of in a nutshell my, my career to date. Um, I, after I finished my PhD, I went back and completed my clinical training in infectious diseases and acute medicine. And I now work at the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford. So what, what was it that in, inspired you uh, to have an interest in science and do that work experience in Sri Lanka? What, what, what was the, uh, the inspiration behind that? Um, I guess I was, um, I, I was good at science and maths at school. And I really liked the combination of being able to sort of think critically about, about problems and sort of solve problems in medicine, but also to have the the, the part where you can talk to patients, where you can really get to chat to people and hear about their their personal lives and their little stories. And medicine's really unique. I think it's a real privilege being a doctor and having that mix of both the scientific and the personal. So, and and of course, you've got that um, part of what you do dealing with the individual patient, but you also work in clinical trials of vaccines, and so looking at a completely different end where you make a difference at much larger level by interventions with vaccines at the population level. That's right. I I, I think I'm really lucky to have a, a job where I, I mix my time between academia and clinical work. And again, what I really enjoy about the science is sort of coming up with solutions to problems, trying to figure out experiments or ways of getting to the bottom of, of, of the nub of a question. Um, it's, it uses a very different part of your brain, I think. And it's satisfying to think that you might 
enact things on, on a big scale. You might be part of something that has real impact across hundreds of thousands, if not millions of patients. Um, but at the end of the day, it's all very well saving these anonymous lives, but I'd quite like to know the name of the person whose life I'm saving. Great. Um, and I'm sure you do that extremely well. Now, um, we really need to talk about the pandemic. And of course, the first cases of pneumonia in Wuhan in China and were being described in December of 2019. Uh, but really, um, I don't think most people were aware of that until um, 2020, um, uh, early in the year. When, when were you first aware that there was something going on outside the UK um, that could then turn into a pandemic? So I, as an infectious diseases physician, sign up to a, a set of alerts where I get sort of um, messages um, about global health issues, emerging health issues. So whether that's outbreaks of diseases or whether that's um, um, kind of natural disasters that might require medical intervention. Um, and, and so I, I remember getting um, an alert about the first outbreak of SARS, which happened in the early 2000s in Southeast Asia. I was a junior doctor at the time. And I remember thinking that perhaps this could be another similar similar localised outbreak. And uh, so re really, what was it when the first cases were here in Europe with the, the large numbers that were first experienced in Italy that, that, it, that it started to sound like a problem? Or um, was it not until all cases here in the UK? No, it was really worrying to hear about the cases, first of all, in Italy. And the Italian hospitals very quickly became overwhelmed and we were getting these really distressing accounts of physicians trying their best to treat these desperately unwell patients and the hospitals just being at capacity. And it became clear that we really had to plan for this to happen in the UK. And in my hospital, in the John Radcliffe Hospital, we started um, developing a task force of infectious diseases doctors, infection control consultants, microbiologists, as well as key operational people to figure out just what we would do were this to spill over into the UK and into Oxford. So when did you first start seeing um, patients in the hospital? The first cases in the UK were, were reported really at the start of February of 2020. But when did, you, when did you start seeing them in the hospital in Oxford? So I think it was, I can't quite remember the dates to be honest, but it was towards the end of February or the beginning of March. We'd seen one or two patients who'd come back from from, from Europe, it was actually after the February half term, and they weren't unwell, they were young young people, and we admitted them just out of a, an abundance of caution because we didn't really know what to expect, and actually they, they weren't particularly unwell, and we discharged them um, after um, a couple of weeks in the hospital. But there was one Monday morning when I turned up, we'd have these one or two people, we weren't terribly worried about them, and then I turned up on the Monday morning, and suddenly my ward of 20 had 12 patients with what we now call COVID-19 on it. And they were very different. They were older, they were comorbid, they had other disease conditions, and they were really unwell. And that was really shocking. That uh, that was, it, it was unbelievably stressful to, to have to look after them. So it, it, what was the, the, the stress about it? Was it because this was a disease that you didn't know what to expect would happen next? And when you, when you met a patient for the first time, you, you know, we often have quite a good feel about um, where things are going. But is that different in, in, in that time? 
Well, we'd been hearing all these stories about what had happened in Italy and what had happened in China. And so we were expecting that these patients were going to be really unwell. But I think we just hadn't appreciated how disempowering it was to be confronted with these unwell patients and not really to have a clue about what to do with them. You're, you're, you're used to being the expert as a consultant. You're used to knowing what to do with your patients. And if you don't know, you ask a colleague or you look it up in a, in a, you know, in a medical database. But this wasn't flu. This wasn't influenza. There was no guidance. There was no evidence out there. And so I felt really hopeless. I, I felt I really couldn't do very much I, I, at all for, for my patients who needed a solution. So, so you were on the the ward um, with with this first cohort of of uh, patients um, with um, COVID nineteen. What what was the environment there? How how were you dressed? So up until this point, we'd been managing patients the the few patients that we'd had in hospital with full PPE. So we had gowns, gloves, respirators, masks, everything, and that felt quite safe because we felt like we were being quite protective of ourselves and of the other members of, of staff that we were working with. And we also had enough side rooms that each patient could be on their own in a in a negative pressure side room. So we felt quite confident that we weren't going to be carrying the virus out of the rooms that the patients were in. But then once we had this surge of that first sort of set of patients who, 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 who filled up the ward, essentially, we quickly ran out of PPE. Um, we had to make do with simple surgical masks and simple gloves, and, and we just didn't have any more side rooms. And you know, the staff were terrified. They they could see what was happening to these patients. They heard the stories of what was happening amongst healthcare workers in China and in Europe, and they were utterly petrified that they were going to get sick. And the numbers just kept going up. So we went from twelve patients on the first day to twenty five patients the next day. And then it just kept going up almost exponentially day on day. And by the end of the second week, we had about three wards full of patients. And they were all unwell. They were all desperately sick. And many of them came in and died within you know, 48 hours of admission. And and when, when you say they're unwell, this was they were breathless, gasping for air um, because of um, the effects of the virus in the lungs. That's right. And this wave, the virus really caused a, a, a severe pneumonitis, severe inflammation of the lungs. Their lungs were, were, were just full of inflammation. They couldn't breathe properly. They were breathless. They were, um, their oxygen levels were really low. And this meant that they um, you know, felt scared. They were, their, their blood pressure would go down. Their heart rate would go up. And they would essentially very quickly go into organ failure. And there was so little that we could give them. Um, aside from oxygen and morphine to relieve their breathlessness or to relieve their relieve any pain they had and and you you sort of really highlighted the the point you made earlier about how helpless you felt how how were you discussing that with these uh, with these patients who were so sick well the patients were also terrified and it must have been awful for them because there they were stuck on a ward they couldn't have any friends or family visit and um, they weren't allowed to use phones we didn't we haven't set up things like iPads and so on for communicating with the outside world. Everybody around them was also terrified, was dressed in whatever PPE they could cobble together. You know, we kept them at arm's length. We didn't, you know, we didn't 
you know, we tried to minimize touching them or we certainly didn't comfort them or hug them the way we might have done with, with you know, other dying patients. And we just had to say to them, look, we, we don't know what to do. We're going to try and make you feel a little bit better, but we can't guarantee you're going to feel better. And what was even worse was when we had to make decisions about whether or not to escalate a patient to intensive care, whether to take them down to the intensive care unit and put them on a ventilator, uh, a machine to breathe for them. There were very limited resources to do that. And it was clear even early on to us that there were some patients who were just not going to not going to survive intensive care despite our best efforts. The, the very elderly, the very frail, those with severe underlying other health conditions. And we had to just say to them, we're not going to take you to intensive care. And that felt awful. That felt really horrendous. And um, did you reach a point where there was uh, no space on the wards or in intensive care or, or were things always managed at a level where you could cope? I mean, I wish I could say that that everything worked really smoothly, but even in a hospital like Oxford, which is hugely well-resourced and has so many staff and, and so many facilities, we didn't have enough intensive care beds to always offer intensive care to, to those who would have liked to have done so. Over the course of the pandemic, the capacity for intensive care um, um, interventions and monitoring increased. But in March 2020, we were very, very limited. And we were nursing patients in combined bed spaces. We were really running out of staff and space to manage patients safely. There was one day I remember when we ran out of syringe drivers. These, these are the bits of equipment that you use to, to give a continuous infusion of morphine in palliative care where we couldn't even provide dignified deaths to those who were dying because we didn't have the kit to do that. So, uh, Maheshi, the 23rd of March was when the, uh, the government then uh, announced the first lockdown, um, which was then legally enforced a, a few days later, the 26th of March. Now, were you still working on the wards at, at that point? And do, do you remember um, subsequently any change in, in the, the pressure on the hospitals? I was working on the ward. And I have to say, I was so immersed in, in the world of COVID and, and the sick patients that I, I almost didn't really pay attention to what was happening outside the hospital. Um, my husband was also a doctor and he just had to carry on working. He's an oncologist with cancer care kept going throughout the pandemic. And I have three young children. And I think my main worry was, well, you know, how am I going to get food to, to feed my family? And, you know, if, if the supermarkets are closed and I'm in the hospital and I can't get out to them, and you know, what am I going to do with my kids? They're too young to leave at home. And I have to say their schools were brilliant and they took my children back into school. There were three of six children in the whole school um, and looked after them and kind of kept them safe during the whole of the pandemic. But it was, it was, it was, I was, it was very much just focusing on the immediate problem in front of me. How do I, how do I sort out my patients? What do I, what can I do for them? And then how do I just keep my immediate family going? Um, I couldn't really think of very much else. And with um, uh, that sort of fear that you talked about amongst um, staff, was part of that the fear of taking the virus home? And were you worried yourself about that and uh, with your family? Yeah, staff were really worried about infecting their their friends and family, and, and so was I. Um, 
I was lucky I didn't have anybody who was particularly vulnerable living with me at home but I would obsessively sort of take off my scrubs in you know outside my front door and then sort of run to the shower and I'd have a really hot shower before I would hug any of my family I mean I don't know what the neighbors thought but um it was it, it was this sort of irrational fear of, of of touching anything I would just wipe everything down with with antiseptic wipes and you know we we all as we now do but we all became great friends of of alcohol and alcohol hand gel like bottles of it everywhere and <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, of course one of the other features at this time was um the uh, the discussion there was about ethnic minority groups and particularly healthcare workers um being uh, uh, overrepresented in those who then became very sick and um, with covid-19 and you must have had many um colleagues in the hospital in that in, in that situation so did, was was that something that was very difficult to deal with that was an added layer of fear i think for for our healthcare workers many healthcare workers in the nhs are um, from ethnic backgrounds and um indeed in in our trust in my trust um three of my colleagues sadly died of covid-19 in that first wave and they were all from um asian um minority backgrounds so there was this added fear that somehow asian people seemed to be getting more sick uh, black and asian people seemed to be getting more sick with this with this disease i think in retrospect when we look at the data um it wasn't as simple as being a, a sort of clear re ethnic susceptibility to disease i think um what really explained it was the fact that many um people of black or asian backgrounds have other comorbidities such as type 2 diabetes which was an independent risk factor for covid-19 and also people from these backgrounds often tend to be of lower socioeconomic status tend to have multi-generational families living together live in more crowded settings and so transmission of virus amongst households is is more common so i think it was it was it, you know that got conflated with an ethnic risk to infection but it doesn't sort of detract from the fact that people from black and asian minority ethnic groups are overrepresented in the lower socioeconomic statuses and might not seek healthcare for other reasons and and uh, i i at that time of course the, the the general view was that this could be an an absolute feature um which was very worrying for uh, for people um in that setting so uh, i mean things did calm down as a result of the uh, the lockdowns fortunately and the numbers being admitted to hospitals fell um considerably and we went through a, a a period after the lockdowns were lifted in on the 10th of may of 2020 of some local lockdowns the first uh, being in leicester um and it wasn't until um november of 2020 that then the second uh, lockdown um happened uh which then sort of coincided with the eventual over the next month or so emergence of the alpha variant which at the, at the at the time was known as the kent variant of covid-19 and uh the uh, the lockdown was then briefly lifted over christmas of 2020 and then back in place on the 3rd of january of of 2021 so in in that period during that very big wave that happened really from november through to the early part of 2021 uh, were you working on the wards in that period and and was there any major difference compared with your experience in the first uh, wave of covid-19 
so I was working again that winter. I seemed to have timed my my clinical rotor to coincide with with surges of COVID nineteen, unfortunately. Um, things were different. I think there was less fear amongst staff because by now we had better access to PPE. We recognised the disease. We recognised the patterns of deterioration in our patients. Um, the vaccines seemed to be around the corner. We were sort of hearing lots about the, the different vaccine trials um, that were running around the world. Um, but it was still, we, we were still overwhelmed in the NHS with the sheer numbers of, of patients who came in that December 2020. Um, as I said, some things were better. We'd had the first results of the recovery trial. So we knew some things that might make a difference. You know, something like dexamethasone, an incredibly cheap, widely available drug that dramatically reduced mortality from COVID-19, from severe COVID-19. So we felt there were some things that we could do, but this time it wasn't fear that was the problem. It was the sheer numbers of people who were coming in through the door. And again, we were we were we felt that our wards were, were full of patients who were, who were who were incredibly unwell intensive care units which had you know upscaled their capacity were also at the at the point of being overwhelmed um, and and across the uk we were really struggling with with the numbers who were in and we weren't seeing anything else we weren't seeing any patients with heart attacks or you know strokes i mean i, I, I you know they they just didn't come in it was all just covid-19 at that point and so those patients in in that um, uh, second wave of, of uh, coronavirus, they were just as sick as before, or or, or did they uh, appear to be uh, less sick, and and just there was more capacity to allow less sick people into hospital? We were admitting people who were less sick to hospital. That that's for sure. Um, and I think, unfortunately, many of the more vulnerable members of of society had actually died in that first wave. Um, but but we were seeing younger patients and there seemed to be more transmission amongst younger groups. Um, I remember there were there were many pregnant women I seemed to see in, in that December 2020 period. Um, so although we did have some wins, we did get some people out of hospital. Um, there was just a lot of disease. And, and I remember in our hospital, we ran out of oxygen, the, the, the piped oxygen supply in our hospital just couldn't cope with the demand of so many patients. Um, who were requiring high flow oxygen. And so we had to ration the oxygen. We had to sort of move people between beds and they'd be allowed on oxygen for a couple of hours and then they'd have to come off and then we'd have to put somebody else in and give it a bit more onto that oxygen supply. So as you said, you, there was access to dexamethasone. So did, was it obvious that outcomes were improving? Or, or maybe that was just because, as you say, the patients were younger. But, but it, I mean, the data suggests that the, the dexamethasone, as you said, worked extremely well. But was it obvious in the front line that there was a big change? There was. And in March 2020, I think I don't... I, I, it was it, it almost seemed unusual to discharge somebody who'd recovered from COVID-19. It was, you know, you remember the people you sent home. Whereas in December 2020, many more people, I mean, this is sort of anecdotal evidence, but to me, it seemed that many more people were actually going home having recovered from COVID-19 pneumonitis because of dexamethasone treatment. So you, you were very involved in the uh, clinical trials of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, and we, we're not going to talk about that today. But then the vaccine was rolled out 
um, from uh, the uh, with the Pfizer vaccine in December of 2020, and then uh, doses then more widely used in the first half um, of 2021. So the, the vast majority of uh, susceptible individuals uh, were vaccinated um, in the first few months of 2021, and so certainly by the summer. The vast majority of people who wanted to be vaccinated had had access to vaccines. Um, and then the Delta wave came. So at that point, uh, did you see the hospitals overwhelmed again? Um, or um, had that made any su substantial difference? There was a clear change in in the uh, epidemiology of COVID-19, I guess, in the hospital with Delta. Um Patients were being admitted with who happened to be COVID nineteen positive on PCR, but they were being admitted with other things. So that you know they they would be admitted with a heart attack and happen to be COVID nineteen positive rather than being admitted because they had bad COVID nineteen disease. So that was that was different. So on the face of it, the numbers of hospital admissions with COVID nineteen still seemed very high, but actually it was a different pattern of of, of disease that we were seeing. And that, um, I guess, was also the case in ICU, was it? If you look at the most critically ill patients, um, were they just instantly positive or were they from some particular subgroups, maybe who weren't vaccinated or, or maybe couldn't respond to vaccines? So we did look at that, actually, at the height of the Delta wave to try and understand what was happening in intensive care units. And actually, um, Whilst there was a high proportion of people on intensive care who happened to be COVID-19 positive, if you actually looked at what caused their admission, it was with another condition. So, for example, a road traffic accident or a sort of intracerebral bleed. And there were a small minority of patients on intensive care because they had severe COVID-19 infection and they were often immunised. But if you look a bit harder, it became clear that actually these individuals often had multiple other comorbidities. They had diabetes or some other um, um, uh, problem with their immune system that meant they may not have mounted as vigorous a response to the to the vaccine as a, as a healthy individual. So it really was very different to what we'd seen with the original ancestral strain and with the alpha, alpha um, variant. And uh, so subsequently, we've, we've had other waves. We've had various different variants of Omicron uh, which started at the at the end of 2021 and continued um, through uh, 2022, and, and in fact even today. Um, so with uh, with those um, uh, waves that have happened, and particularly more recently, um, if you go into the hospital, are you seeing people who are like they were back in March of 2020, gasping for breath, um, or is, has that disease that you remember from then the horror of that disease gone? It really is completely different now. Um, we do admit people still with COVID-19 and because of COVID-19, but it's very much a, a mild illness. They often don't have any changes on their chest X-rays or CTs, nothing like the horrendous scans we were seeing um, in patients in 2020. Um, they often don't need very much oxygen. Very, very rarely do they actually need admission to um, intensive care uh, because of severe COVID-19. And it's almost an incidental finding now. So uh, while up until recently, we have still been cohorting patients with COVID-19 on, on by which I mean sort of segregating them on specific wards um, to avoid transmission to, to other patients. Actually, it's not at all like it was um, in the first part of the pandemic. 
So you've um, lived through uh, the trauma that everyone else has, but also been in the front line of these critically um, ill um, patients. Uh, do, do you think that's changed you, Is it that, that, that experience that you've been through and your outlook on both looking after your patients and on life? Gosh, I mean, I think there are parts of 2020 which I... I don't ever really want to think about again. I, there are some memories that I put into a little box and that I've closed and I've put away and I really never want to dwell on again because it was deeply disturbing and traumatic. Um, I think one of the things that kept me going was actually the ability to be part of the, the vaccine trials to kind of feel that I was helping to you know, find a solution, you know, finding, you know, helping to work on something that would stop people getting sick in the first place. And I guess from a, a, a from a sort of academic point of view, it's been amazing to see that sort of coming together of scientists and clinicians to kind of work together towards this common goal and to, to, to come up with the solutions collectively that have, that have mitigated the pandemic. But as a, as a sort of individual, as a um, as a daughter, as a mother, as a friend of people who've had COVID nineteen, I, I I hope we never have another pandemic like this again. I, I think we would all agree with that. Those of us who've who've lived through it, um, Maheshi, it, it, uh, clearly you are extremely busy with your um, clinical work, your uh, work as a, an academic. Uh, working um, on research around vaccines as well as teaching um, and supervising medical students. Um, so what do you do in your spare time when you're uh, when you're not uh, at work? Okay, do you want the real answer, Andy? <laughs> I have no spare time because you bloody keep me working all the time. <laughs> that, that's the right answer. <laughs> um, so my 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 favorite downtime hobby is actually cooking. I love nothing better than to shut everybody out of my kitchen and spend about four hours making a very complicated meal for family and friends. So that's my my favorite hobby. Something really precise that requires baking and careful measuring out of ingredients. That's my favorite thing to do. Professor Maheshi Ramasamy, consultant physician and baker, uh, thank you very much for joining us on this podcast. Thank you for having me. That was the Oxford Colloquy. Thanks for joining us in our podcast, bringing you the facts, stories and people behind the science. So you might be wondering, what is a colloquy? We've called this podcast series the Oxford Colloquy. Well, a colloquy is a discourse or a conversation, and hopefully you'll agree that that's what we've been having. 